The reading, ooh, the reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning at the first verse. Then David fled from Nioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, May the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. So skipping the next bit, but basically their plan plays out. And sure enough, when they sit down at this feast, King Saul does notice that David is absent, that he's popped back to Bethlehem and he is furious and not just with David, but with his own son, Jonathan. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. 
Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. The following morning, David, who's been hiding all this time in the fields, is waiting to find out if it's safe to return. And Jonathan has devised a way of signaling to David involving a little boy and an archery practice. It's all uh, very exciting. Um, But when he is assured that they are safe, they're not being watched, David actually comes out of hiding. After the boy had gone... David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. This is the word of the Lord. Yay, thanks so much. Nicola. I bet most of you are too old to um, have watched the film The Fugitive with um, Harrison. I mean, not too old, too young, too young, too young. Um, I think it might have been 1993. Harrison Ford. Who has watched The Fugitive? Great film. Great film. Um, And Harrison Ford is playing this brilliant doctor whose wife is brutally murdered in the night. And he is framed for this crime. And he goes on the run, and he's such a good actor that you can see in his face through the film this terrible, the shock that he can't go back to his job, that he can't go back to his home, this loss that he has endured um, with his wife murdered, and the exhaustion, the endless injustice of this thing where he's being hounded for this crime that he hasn't committed and at this point in this incredible story um, David too finds himself a fugitive he is now a wanted man he's unable to return to his home to his wife he's going to have to live in hiding he's going to have to be always on the run never sure when his enemies are going to turn up to hunt him down every time he puts his head on a pillow at night he, he can't be sure that he'll still be uh, have breath in his lungs the following morning and this is going to stretch out for years and after this beautiful sweet parting we see in this chapter between these two soul friends and Jonathan his ally David is going to be alone now and actually Jonathan and David only meet very briefly that we get to hear about anyway when David's in hiding and Jonathan comes to find him and they reiterate this covenant of love between them but in fact Jonathan will be killed in battle And so, effectively, this beautiful friendship meets an end here. So think of it, years before, as I think Sam spoke about a few weeks ago, still a boy, David, has been anointed by Samuel as the king-designate, as the heir to the throne, destined to lead a nation. And now... As he and his friend part ways, Jonathan turns back to the city and David is out in the field. He will have to use his wits 
just to get food to eat. He will have to be shrewd and wily just to stay alive. And I wonder whether some of us are at a point in our lives where we do know we've been given an assignment from God. And I, my sense of today was to let you know that if that is you, you will be opposed. You will be opposed. That calling on your life will be opposed. I don't know if you knew that. Because in these turbulent times, I'm thinking that the church probably has to wake up and join the global church in, in knowing that it is not going to cut it to live our lives trying to avoid suffering, trying to avoid difficulty, trying to avoid pain. And I'm wondering whether we need to wake up to that calling. Somebody I was speaking to, a very, very brilliant young church leader, was saying that he, last year for him and for his family and his personal life and for the church, though you might not have been able to see it on the outside, he said it was the hardest year they've had since he got trained up to lead a church. And he said to me, what I'm wondering is, is whether we need to learn that the very thing that could derail us is the very thing that can propel us. <laughs> so in these seasons, could it be for you and for me that we're going to walk through the pain, we're going to walk through difficulties and challenges because the very thing that could derail us could in fact be the thing that will propel us. The other thing for David, alongside opposition, like most of us uh, will hopefully never have to endure, um, is this waiting, isn't it? And the question is this, what will become of us in the waiting? What will become of us in the waiting? Will you become who you are destined to be in that time? Not in spite of the delay, but because of it. I am one of these people who actually swaps cues in Sainsbury's in order to be a bit, a bit faster through to the other end. Do you know, it never really works. Gets you through maybe 20 seconds after, you were, if you'd stayed where you were, anyway. Um, I'm not known for my patience. But I do believe, and I truly do believe, that God carves out in us character in those times of waiting, that, that is the very thing that will enable us to do the thing he has for us to do. So that with God, waiting is never wasted. Waiting is never wasted. And as Andy said, and what a brilliant talk uh, you did last week, thank you. In, in Psalm 59, we get this glimpse of David living on the one hand uh, with some confusion, uh, this anointing over his life, but being hounded by enemies for, for, you know, thinking, what on earth have I done wrong? Having to wait. And Psalm 59 says, he, he, it sort of gives us this beautiful glimpse into David's spirit, 
what he does in the waiting, he says, Lord, you are my strength. I watch for you. I sing praise to you. God, you are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. And he says, my enemies prowl about, but I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in time of trouble. So I wonder whether for some of us, there's something of David's story here that you are being invited to grasp hold of and make your own today. And what about Saul? What about Saul? Saul is frankly having a nightmare. This is a low point for him, one of a few, but this is surely a low point for Saul. Not only is he absolutely rubbish at actually piercing anyone with his spear, he keeps missing, missing people, um, but he's been anointed king, hasn't he, by Samuel, first king over Israel, and then we, we've watched him lose his way. And as David's popularity has increased... Saul has become more suspicious and more paranoid about him. As David becomes more successful, Saul becomes more fearful of his success. And as David shows bravery and gifting, all the while loyal to Saul, Saul gets more and more eaten up by envy. And to be fair, Humanly speaking, Saul has some good reasons to feel vulnerable. His own position as king is under threat. So in the culture, his son Jonathan would be competing for the throne as next in line, and many a son would plot to finish off their father in order to seize the throne. But way more than this, Saul is, is troubled because he realizes that David, who is loved by everyone who is fearless on the battlefield, who is a brilliant poet and songwriter. He's one of those people who seems to be outstanding at absolutely everything, which is, let's face it, sometimes a little bit annoying. But Saul is being eaten up by um, watching David succeed and be loved he is the true rival, I think. And he must have been at least irked by the fact that this is a servant boy. This is a shepherd boy. And disconcertingly, you see, Jonathan and David should have been rivals competing for that place on the throne. And yet they've become sole friends. And worse still... <laughs> Saul has witnessed Jonathan in chapter 18, I think, handing over his robe, his armor, even his weapons to David. So he makes it clear early on that he has this sense that God's favor is passing to David. And it says in chapter 18, there's a little bit that it says, and even Saul's servants approved. Ouch, ouch. So not only has Saul's son and heir ceded his place to David, he defends him to his father, he rebukes his father for trying to kill David, reminding him that actually David has been loyal, he's fought for Saul, reminding him of his innocence. And in chapter 19, Saul seemed to accept this initially, 
And he accepts this good counsel from Jonathan as part of his cabinet almost. But quickly, we see he reverts back again. He is in the end determined to cling to his position for dear life and get rid of anyone who threatens it. So Saul cannot stand that everybody loves David. And perhaps especially Jonathan, who's championing David and not him. And also in chapter 19, we saw that his daughter, Michal, who's married to David, also lies and deceives Saul's men to save David's life. And we watch Saul, through this book, become more irrational, unpredictable, unreliable, as he sees those nearest to him slipping away from him and realigning their loyalty to David. And tragically, and it is tragic, we see Saul doomed as fear and envy take hold of him and turn violent. This stuff's got a hold on him and it is driving him insane. So Saul, do you remember, who started out modest and self-effacing, he is the one who hid under the luggage when Samuel came to anoint him and declare him as the king. But he hasn't dealt with that sense of inadequacy. He hasn't dealt with his own insecurity. And where it's been coupled with power now, where he's been given a position of power, it is literally lethal. And he ends up trying to kill David twice. And indeed, in this chapter, in the story Nicola read to us, he strikes out with his spear at Jonathan. I'm not sure if he was really trying to kill him, but he was certainly trying to give him a fright. And underneath all of this, we see Saul increasingly disregarding God. In chapter 15, Samuel challenges Saul and and, and says, you've disobeyed God's command. And there's two little keys in that chapter to what's happening there. One is where um, Samuel says, Saul, you are little in your own eyes. You are little in your own eyes. And then Saul says, yep, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, Samuel, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You know what? We will let others build our sense of who we are unless who we are is rooted in who God says we are. And it's so easy to fall into, isn't it? Letting other people tell you who you are and what you should be doing. That's the trap that Saul falls into because he's too small in his own eyes. And instead of turning to God to root him and strengthen him in who he is. He lets other people shape him. And in chapter 20, we discover that Saul, who's made this oath before the Lord not to kill David, quickly breaks it. And his own son is so disappointed by that. So this terrible sense in him of inadequacy and insecurity leads to disobedience and makes room for this spirit which is tormenting and disturbing him. And just to take 
this. Think about this for a moment. In Romans 2, it talks about the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And some of these stories are supposed to be a wake-up for us. They're supposed to be a warning about what happens if you let fear and insecurity and jealousy and inadequacy fuel you rather than get them healed up. When we were serving a while ago in a church in Bath, John was the curate there, and we were chatting to other friends who had trained with us, and this bloke was doing his curacy somewhere else, and uh, I remember him saying, he said, he said, my boss, as in the vicar, um, doesn't seem to want me to do well. He seems to be worried that I'll do well. He actually doesn't like it. When I'm good at something he's given me to do, it's as if he's afraid I'll do better than him. Now, wonder where you are on the King Saul scale. Maybe you know you've been, it's been tough because you've been held back by somebody who should have been your champion. Maybe you've been in that position where you trained someone up and then they got better, better than you. And you found yourself, instead of championing them, irritated and jealous. Where are you on the King Saul scale? You see, the New Testament talks about, and I think John alluded to it, not giving the enemy a place, not giving the enemy a foothold in these things. In other words, not letting a little thought or a little action turn into a habit that turns into what the Bible calls a stronghold. In other words, something that starts to influence and control our choices and our behaviors and our thoughts. That I've encountered that a couple of times in my life in particular, where I've heard myself saying something, and it's a pattern. And I, I don't like it. I don't want to be that person. If I sort of point, you know, if it, as a trajectory, it's not, it's not something I want to carry on with. It's not who I want to be. And someone, sometimes John, but we, we often need someone else to say, what? You know, really? <laughs> and we need a little bit of a wake-up, don't we, about what's happening. If we're picking up something and it's becoming a destructive pattern in our lives. Some of those flags, for me anyway, will be, you know, um, that, that someone says something. They say, they say one thing and then they do another thing. So you know they kind of want to be one thing, but they keep on doing something different. Or you find yourself disproportionately angry or upset about a thing or something someone says. In fact, you sort of overreact. And I remember Sue Hurrell. Is Sue Hurrell here? Oh, dear. <laughs> I shouldn't really speak about it when she's not here. But she broke her shoulder, many of you will know. Um, and when I saw her again, I was so excited that I grabbed her by the shoulders to um, embrace her and welcome her back. And, of course, she cried out in pain. And um, as I was thinking about this, it's something like that, isn't it, where there's an actual wound there. And so people unintentionally press on it. And you're crying out in pain. You're you're reacting in a quite a strange way to something because it's not been healed up. It's a wound. Or there'll be things you start saying, like, I'm hopeless. I never get it right. I always get angry. I can't help doing that. 
or we get into a negative pattern where our words bring people down, sometimes the people we love the most. Or we start to deceive ourselves. And again, you need a friend to help you with that one. You start justifying things that are foolish or mean or just wrong. Where are we on the King Saul scale? Now take a moment in your own heart to ask yourself this. Where are you most vulnerable at your life, in your life at this moment? Where are you most vulnerable to envy and insecurity or comparison? And what is it you need to do about it? Just take a moment. Where are you most vulnerable to envy and insecurity at the moment in your life? There's good news coming up in a minute. See, the very thing, I looked at some of the research about, you know, the inevitable sort of social media thing, and it's very mixed, isn't it? Most of, most of those sorts of things are very mixed in some ways. They help us make connections. They help give us a sense of belonging. But those very things, when they get out of place in our lives, become the source of feelings of isolation or FOMO or dissatisfaction. When we realize that someone's got more than us. Someone always has more than you, my friends. There'll always be someone with more than you. And there'll be someone with less than you. So you're going to have to get a grip and decide what you want to do if that feeling pops into your heart or into your head. Because if you let it go where Saul let it go to, it becomes destructive. Now, just in case you didn't know, in Jesus Christ as children of God, we have everything we need to deal with those hazards before they trip us up. There is a beautiful um, prayer that we're invited into. It was sometimes, I think we've sometimes called it the five R's to help us remember, but it's got an F in the middle, so I can't quite work that one out. But basically, it's a pattern, and if you like, things starting with the same letter, there's, that we do it through, through ideas around recognizing something. Recognize it, acknowledge it, confess it. Then repent, turn away from it. I think the next R could be release, but it's actually forgive. <laughs> forgive that person, release them into forgiveness. If someone has had a hand in rooting that thing into your life, rebuke, rebuke or refuse the enemy, refuse permissions and use your authority in Christ to say no more. And then replace, replace what you've let go of with blessing and truth. Invite the spirit to renew your heart and fill you again with power and love. That's like sort of speed dating. But anyway, there's a lot in there, isn't there, that we have these weapons, these tools that we've been given so that we don't have to end up where King Saul ends up in this story. And maybe you're not struggling with those kinds of things at the moment in your life. But I, as I was praying for today, I had a picture of an enormous garden fork. And it was this invitation to dig truth into the soil of your life. Take this time to dig the truth of what God says about who you are into the soil of your life. Because there will be times when you're threatened, when you feel like um, taking someone out because <laughs> they're better than you at something or whatever it is. 
But if you have dug that truth into the soil of your life, that you are significant, that you are loved, that you belong, that you have a purpose, that you're gifted, then you don't need to go around proving that. You don't need to go around (laughs) pushing other people out of the way. You are secure in who God says you are. And just to end, we're going to look briefly at Jonathan. So that was Saul. Jonathan is the obvious heir to the throne. So it wouldn't be that surprising if he was threatened by David. But he isn't. He acknowledges him early on as the rightful crown prince. He doesn't hate David. He loves him. He doesn't fear his success. He celebrates it. He resists any temptation towards envy or violence, and he actually champions David. He builds this this friendship of loyalty and faithfulness. He doesn't cling on to privilege or position. He doesn't demand his rights or his entitlements. He actually freely divests himself of his status. He doesn't try to compete with David, even though earlier in the story we hear that he is actually a brave and successful warrior in his own right. And it'll probably not be lost on you that David is the one who is seen as this sort of forerunner of Christ. But I think John mentioned that it's actually Jonathan here who displays extraordinary Christ-likeness as he lays aside his status, as he lays aside his rights to make way for what God is doing. And he humbles himself. He takes a lower position freely and gladly. He doesn't need to point out his own accomplishments. He doesn't need to cling on to his position. And far from being threatened by David, or feeling he has to compete or indeed crush him. He loves David as his own soul. And he speaks up for him and defends him. And their love and affection for one another remains constant, even though Saul in this passage tries to get Jonathan to collude with him. He says to Jonathan, for as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Jonathan comes across as this steady, wise person, even as it is emerging that his father is in fact treacherous and untrustworthy. And even though in what we heard read, he is publicly and brutally shamed by his father. It says he's fiercely angry, but he's not out of control. And Jonathan is a strategic thinker. He thinks beyond himself and for the good of the future. They reiterate again and again this covenantal promise to love and protect. And if you noticed it, it wasn't just each other, but it's their houses. He's basically saying, promise me that you won't wipe out my family down the line to preserve your own position. And he knows that a deposed royal family is vulnerable and will be considered a threat at some point. So he invokes God. He says, God, come between me and you, between my descendants and your descendants forever. And that's not supposed to be a cozy blessing. 
That is a promise made before God not to give in to fear or rivalry and try to wipe each other out down the line. And in fact, you may know that in the second book of Samuel, David remembers that very covenant and he seeks out Jonathan's grandchild. And some years later, he provides for him and brings him in to his own royal household. So when all is said and done, Jonathan is this person who would rather facilitate God's will than take center stage. He would rather facilitate what God wants than be the star of the show. <laughs> so, something to think about is, for some of us, I think, between the David scenario and the Jonathan scenario, that it's possible that you'd be doing both of those things in different seasons of your life. It's even possible you might be doing both of them at the same time. But I wonder whether there's some Davids in the room who may be facing some opposition, who may be having to wait for what God has called them into. And I wonder if there's some Jonathans in the room where your calling right now is to champion someone else. Maybe you won't be the name that everyone knows. Maybe you won't get the credit. But God sees. He rewards. And this calling is a high calling. It's incredibly Christ-like to pour yourself out, to enable someone else to be what they are called to be. You need to be fiercely loyal. You'll probably be wise and strategic, be constant and unwavering, willing to lay yourself down so that someone else is released into their destiny with God. So let's just take a minute again. Just ask the Lord for a moment and then we're going to pray. Let's ask the Lord whether he wants to speak to you um, out of anything that we've reflected upon today. So come, Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us? Stir us up to more. So we've got a few moments to receive some prayer and pray for one another. So um, hopefully we've got a team ready to do that. That'd be fantastic. And uh, should, we, should we stand if you're able and just let's worship for the minutes we have and, and also um, get some people prayed for. Maybe the Holy Spirit has nudged you around one of those things. <laughs>